I'm Malcolm Maiden. Welcome to the Yarra Exchange, a podcast covering what's happening in the markets and the world of business generally, brought to you by Yarra Capital Management. My guest today is Ahmed Fahour, an executive that would probably score very close to the top of the list for name recognition in the Australian markets. He's had an interesting career, to put it mildly, and it's far from over. He's worked at Boston Consulting Group and had senior roles at City and NAB, including being chief executive of the latter bank's Australian operations. He was chosen by the Australian government to be managing director and chief executive of Australia Post, a business enterprise that at that time was at the crossroads. In 2018, Ahmed Fahour became managing director and chief executive officer of Latitude Financial Services, the Australasian consumer finance business formerly known as GE Money. It was acquired in 2015 by Deutsche Bank and private equity firms Kohlberg, Kravis, Roberts and Varde Partners. In October last year, Latitude's well-publicised plans for an IPO that would have valued it at $3.2 billion were put on hold at a time when this market was still being rocked by revelations from the Hain Royal Commission into banking and financial services. It's a great exchange. We discuss Ahmed Fahur's career, get his take on his time at Australia Post, get an update on how Latitude itself is performing and also discuss the coronavirus. I hope you enjoy the discussion. If you do, we'd love you to hit the subscribe button and share it with your colleagues, friends and family. But for now, here's Ahmed Fahur. Ahmed, welcome to the Yarra Exchange. It's great seeing you again. And uh, there's one topic that everybody is thinking about and talking about, and I'd like to get to that one first, and that's uh, coronavirus, what it means, how we should react, what we should do. What's your thinking on that? It's really funny because about 16 to 18 years ago, we had SARS, and it was a very big topic that caught everybody else's attention. But since the abatement of that, um, the last five years, if there, there was a lot of talk around boardrooms and sometimes in homes and definitely in governments, I've always thought about it in three levels. Uh, one is uh, how you deal with things in your own home and how you uh, protect your family. And uh, the second one is how you deal with it at work and what you need to do to protect your work and the workforce and the people you work with. And then the third one is how you deal with it at the community level, i.e. at our country level and even a global level. And so whatever those exogenous factors are that have occupied our mind, if we think about it, those three levels, I think we get to a point whereby we can start to make decisions. And I guess myself with my own family around this virus, uh, we've talked about this um, together. We've sat around and actually had a conversation. And I know some people might think, especially my younger children said, Dad, you are so boring. I can't believe you think about this. But I said, we need a safety plan of how we deal with things when they go wrong. Because what you don't want to be doing is making decisions on the fly. Yes, there'll be some decisions that we'll have to make at that time, but at least we all understand what happens when something goes wrong and how should we plan for that? But let me move from the family level to the business level. And I think this is actually quite important about leaders of corporation and what are they doing to prepare themselves for not just this virus, but any kind of issue that may emerge. And where this comes into play is around how do you deal, some people call it disaster recovery programs or crisis scenarios. And I learned the bitter hard way that 
those that don't have those really do suffer really poorly and do the wrong thing by their shareholders, their owners and their employees. And where, where I would give you my analogy is the year 2000 to 2004 when I worked at Citigroup and I was the CEO of Citigroup Alternative Investments in New York and uh, we had 9-11 and I was working in Manhattan when 9-11 hit. I was there too. Oh, that's right. Actually, I do remember you saying that. Uh, something we share. Yeah, something that we shared. And I was in Midtown there at, uh, in Park Avenue. And what I would say to you is you really appreciate people who have spent time thinking about how to deal with a crisis and what to do, who have thought about it before it's happened. And because when it happens, people are in shock, in meltdown, in, you know, just cannot deal with what happened. And what I learned Uh, back then, uh, nearly 20 years ago now, is that there are a lot of important people in the organisation that are preparing organisations to deal with those. And so here at Latitude, we have the benefit of having thought through some of these elements. Latitude is the old GE business. Yeah, the GE money business. Is it the GE provenance, the GE planning provenance that gives latitude the preparedness or is it something that you've worked on since you came in? I think there's no question that, you know, like in any company that's born that's got some benefits that its parent has passed on to it, either genetically or behaviourally, that are both positives and sometimes there's not so many positive things uh, that can be passed on by parents to children. But we certainly benefited. I think, you know, GE were very structured planners, a lot of thinking around how to deal with some of these elements. And I think The real benefit for Latitude in a situation like this is we're essentially a a technology-driven company. We're branchless. We deal with people. 99.99% of our dealing with customers is done either over the telephone or over the internet. You know, that's why I say to people we're a finance company and we only use technology to interact with customers. So we're a fintech in that sense. So with that fortunate position that we're in, that is a real benefit of being able to interact and do our business without having to lose connectivity. With that in mind, it makes our situation significantly more advantaged when there is a problem like this. We have locations in several parts of Australia, in Brisbane, in Sydney and in Melbourne, and we have an operation in Auckland. And so what we've done is we've spread out capability around and in the last couple of years, but especially last year, we did something really, really smart, which is we improved the interconnectivity between our sites. Just for example, we're here in Melbourne today, but if we called tonight and said, tomorrow morning, don't come into this office, every single one of our staff in Melbourne can connect with their laptop into the main system. And if Melbourne shuts down and a technology shuts down, we can switch all our technology to go to Sydney. We can switch it all, go to Brisbane. This infrastructure and the use of technology to enable us to operate virtually is a real basis of competitive advantage. And people have to prepare for the fact that they may not be able to access a building. They may not be able to access a state. How does the business continue? And only last week we had a board meeting just our regular board meeting that we have. And in the risk committee, our chairman, Mike Tilley, led a conversation with the chairman of the risk and audit committee being Mark Joyner. My team came along and we went through, this is what we would do step by step 
to deal with a virus if we couldn't have human interaction. So we're right on top of this. It doesn't mean we're not going to be affected. Of course we will be. And the last bit of this is at the country level. I think the real difference today with this virus is that at the community country level, I think everybody is over-communicating, which is appropriate, calling it early, preparing as opposed to, hey, let me just have a look at how, what, what happens here at the end and give it a whirl. So really I do commend our leaders, both political and NGO level, who are in a very uh, non-panicked way preparing our country for the various scenarios that come along. I think sometimes in corporate Australia one of the criticisms has been that we are in danger or tend to focus too much on process and not enough on product. But in this case, it's all about process really, isn't it? Yeah, I think we're getting ourselves focused on what would happen if such and such a happened but without panicking people. I mean, I think it's extremely appropriate because life has to continue on and you can't just go and freeze the nation because right now we will be disproportionately negatively affected as a country if we panic and do something really silly. Yeah, and more generally, the economic machine that is Australia is a massively multicultural one. And it's one of the reasons we're a modern economy, but it also means that we have connections with yeah. the world and with this virus that other more insular. insular economies don't have. It's one of our strengths, but it's also a complication as we deal with it. As you say, we don't want to panic, but at the same time, when you see the shelves of the supermarket emptying, when you see shares plunge, you can't just ignore that fact. So have you got any feeling for how you don't panic but don't ignore the panic because the panic is part of the collateral damage that we're going to take? That has always been the case in the eye of the storm. It's really hard to be thinking about this, but just as whether it be the Spanish influenza, whether it be the Ebola, whether it be SARS, it's really unfortunate what happens during that time, in that moment, but as people, as nation, as families, we'll see the other side of this and we will learn from previous experiences and I would encourage business people who are involved in this that this is the moment to be alert but not erratic in their decision-making and their behaviour. All right, let's move on from coronavirus and talk a little bit about your early days. You were born in Lebanon but were not much past being a babe in arms when you came out with your parents in 1969, three years old. And your story is part of the great post-World War II economic and social narrative. You went to school in the inner northern suburbs of Melbourne and a Bachelor of Economics at La Trobe Uni and completed an MBA at Melbourne Business School in 1993 while working with the Boston Consulting Group. There were some influential teachers at uni and also at Boston Consulting. Another Melbourne business identity, Colin Carter, was a key person for you, I think. Tell us a bit about those years. Oh, they were great years. I grew up in Carlton, the great multicultural melting pot in Australia, in my view. It was absolutely wonderful to grow up 
here in Melbourne. I, I remember my parents came out. We lived in the Red Flats, as they were known. They're just near Ligon Street. The ones down on Nicholson. Yeah, Nicholson and uh, Elgin Street. And Elgin, yeah. Yeah, so I started there and ended up at Neal Street Primary. And I wasn't to know that at that time, you know, that I was going to be surrounded with such interesting and diverse people. But certainly by the time I got to uni, there were some hugely influential people in my life. Uh, Glenn Withers was one of those who, um, when I was doing my honours thesis, uh, oversaw my thesis. He had joined the university having spent a bit of time at EPAC and working with Paul Keating at the time. And he was a, a towering influence on how I should think about economy and economics and using econometric statistics to help decipher patterns and, and data. You know, back then we didn't have the word big data. We just had the State Library of Victoria and pages and pages of uh, financial information that he made me pour over. What was the thesis on? What I was looking at is what is the big driver in the last uh, 200 years of Australia's history between the first 100 years and the second 100 years for economic prosperity? And, you know, all the traditional theories were on things like wages and other factors that drove economic prosperity and the GDP of Australia. And what the thesis found back then was actually you look at all the variables and none of them explain any of the long-term sustainable GDP growth that you get. There's only one variable that explains it and that's net population growth. Yeah. And so what you can see very clearly is nations that experience either organically within you know, fertility or through net immigration will tend to have outperformance economically versus any other nation. And Australia was a good point and example of that pre-World War and post-World War. So we put together a data series and a wage series and outperformance in wages is driven by that. And we don't have to look very far. Just look at the difference between New South Wales and Victoria in the last 30 years. And you can see that the one big factor there was a bigger net population growth, higher GDP in Victoria versus New South Wales. And that was what my thesis said 30 years ago. That was an early call on what would now probably be conventional wisdom, I think, wouldn't it? I think most people would probably agree that Population growth and immigration growth are just absolutely fundamental. In fact, people are now saying, well, it's population growth that's giving us gross economic growth, but growth per capita is not as strong and are highlighting the differences. Well, what I didn't appreciate as a young uh, 20-year-old when I was writing this thesis, I had one paragraph. For some reason, I reread that thesis a little while ago, and uh, there was one paragraph I put in there and it was a sort of a naive giveaway line. And it said, but of course this completely does not reflect upon the social issues associated with this economic growth. I think if I was to rewrite that thesis, everything would be exactly the same. But what I would say is what makes Australia special is our ability to integrate, to harmonise and to do, especially here in Victoria. I know I'm bit of a Melbourne file, I'll admit to that. But I think our ability to have created this superior economic prosperity, growth, net population growth, and actually have a harmonious society by and large relative to many other nations is what makes Australia a very special case in this analysis. I don't think you want to try to over-engineer both sides of that. I think we got really lucky in many, many ways. We are the lucky country, but there is an important lesson that if you reduce population growth, there are some silly politicians who would like us to just cut this and they think that will actually solve our problems. It doesn't. 
it'll worsen our economic situation if we shut the doors and uh, think that somehow not growing will be a good thing. It's a very bad thing for us. And I think we've done it exceptionally well. doesn't mean we should do more than what we have been doing because it's important to do this well. And I think Australia has, and I think we've got a lot to be proud of. Was it hard for you as a non-Anglo person to break into the highest levels of the Australian business community at a time when it was dominated by Anglo executives, and it still is, to be honest. Did that make your job harder or do you think that it just wasn't an issue? The short answer is I didn't think it was an issue. It was much tougher at school than it was at work, being a non-Anglo-Saxon male, you know, being a brown-skinned man from another country. But I've talked about this in the past, and I'll say this again, that we have a way somehow as Australians of um, equalising and we don't like people to stick their head out too much, otherwise they get a pretty good whack. And we don't just do that in business. We do that at home quite well as well. I think we have this way of harmonising. But on the flip side is we don't like people to feel that they've been left behind and we feel quite a degree of giving people a fair go, this concept of a fair go, is I think just as ingrained in our culture as giving people a whack. And so this idea of equalising and making sure somebody isn't falling too far behind but somebody isn't sticking their head up too high as well is one of the beautiful characteristics of our country. Can it sometimes, you know, get off kilter? Absolutely. Sometimes I think, you know, some people get too much of a whack and I think some people sometimes get left behind that shouldn't be like our Indigenous population is just one example. But in corporate Australia, maybe I'm so silly to not have realised it, but I don't know, I didn't sort of look in the mirror that often and had to remind myself that I'm a Lebanese-born brown man who's a Muslim. I just went about my life and the people that I associated with earlier on in my career were people who were blind to colour and origins and who were only caring about a meritocracy. Colin Carter, I guess, is another one like that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, He he didn't even care that you were a Carlton fan and he was a Geelong (laughs) tragedy. That absolutely proved the fact that he was not taking any biases into consideration. Colin was one example, but George Pappas was the other one. He was it was part of the whole Pappas, Carter, Evans and Coop organisation. You know, George is a Greek son of uh, a fruitier who started in this country at a fruit shop. And uh, George, like Colin, uh, both were um, Harvard graduates, top of their classes, geniuses in their own right. They had other partners as well in the firm. And these are people who are truly exceptional. My Carlton heritage, I'd like to think, was a source of competitive advantage in the 80s when I was uh, breaking through. I mean, we were had a lot of premierships behind us. Of course, we'd smashed Collingwood in 79, 81, 82, but uh, we won three grand finals, not just against Collingwood, but others, but that 79 grand final, not many of us will ever forget that. And I have to say between 79 and 82, I thought, you know, this is the most perfect place to be in the whole universe. You were a uh, very senior bank executive at the NAB between 2004 and 2009. And as you mentioned, you worked at Citibank before that in New York. And of course, here you are at Latitude, It's a finance company again. 
What is it about the finance sector that you find interesting? I've been either 13 years in consulting or another 15 or so years in some kind of financial services capacity and seven and a half years at Australia Post, just roughly give or take. But, you know, I I would say to you that financial services is an opportunity that's such a big part of how society functions, how they enable progress to invest. It's the movement of money and risk between uh, governments, businesses and individuals. And you get to have a pretty big impact. I I just want to be very candid when I say to you, at any stage in my career, I've never thought what would be the next thing that I would do. Financial services found me in some ways. So when I went from BCG as a partner in the Boston Consulting Group, and I was asked by a headhunter to come and join uh, Citigroup. I wasn't much to thinking about, oh, I want to join financial services. It wasn't, this is my destiny. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, I ummed and ahed and ummed and ahed about this quite a bit. You know, what was important to me was the people that worked there and also what impact I could have on the future and the people that worked with me. And so Citigroup was one part. And the same thing happened to NAB. When I came back to Australia, because I wanted my kids to grow up as Australians, I left Citigroup because my third child was born in New York. My other two were growing up. And while I loved New York, I loved America, I had great experiences, amazing opportunities, the most important part of my whole life was the privilege of growing up in this country and I wanted my kids to have the same experience and that's why I brought them back to Australia. And then NAB came knocking on the door and said, we're in trouble. The foreign exchange scandal had just broken out in 2004. The board was fighting. The bank was losing market share in everything it touched. It was chaos. Share price was getting trashed. It was, and I remember there was one month there where the bank lost money in that month. It's impossible for a bank to lose money. You borrow at a particular rate, you lend at twice that amount, and you have a little bit of expenses in the middle. How is it ever possible to not make money? You'd have to be either grossly inefficient or grossly incompetent, or maybe a bit of both. But it was a big problem back then. And this was an iconic institution that when I came of age, I opened my first bank account. And I thought, I remember this in the 80s, I was allowed to open up an NAB account. I was accepted. Like you looked at, if you're an NAB customer, wow, I've made it. (laughs) They have accepted me as a customer. That's how high regard NAB was held in the late 80s by professional people. And here I was now joining this place as the Australian CEO and a board member. And I had MLC and the Australian NAB, the bank, report to me. And I thought, my, how it's gone so badly since then. Yeah. I just want to follow that along a little bit, Armand. I'm not sure I've got the quote right, but uh, you're running Latitude now. It's a finance business and it says on its website, we're not a bank and we're proud of that. And as you say, banks have been the, at, at the absolute heart of the Australian business community for so long mm. and respected for so long. And then in the last 
20 years or so. I mean, they've had a series of crises and they've hit the rails and it's culminated in the Banking Royal Commission and it's not been a good time for banks. And one of the things that's happened is that banks have actually quit areas of business that they traditionally were strong in. So when Latitude says we're not a bank and we're proud of it, what does that mean? It just seems to me that you're really well placed to tell me what's changed about banking and what it means in the competitive landscape of the finance sector. The thing that you're drawing from is we've started here at Latitude to think about what is our role in the financial services industry and what role can we play to support consumers, to support ordinary Australians. We as an organisation have been thinking about our purpose, you know, what is our role, what, what role do we play in Australia's success Some people may not realise this, actually, but we are Australia's largest non-bank lender. That's a fact. And the second thing is that even though we're Australia's largest non-bank, if you add up the entire banking system, you know, all the financial services, we literally are 2%. What that gives you a sense of is the importance of the banks. Yes. They are 95% of the financial system and the four majors are 90% of that. There are other banks. There's um, a lot of other regional banks, credit unions and other banking licensed uh, organisations, but predominantly it's the four majors. Maybe more so these days we should actually talk about the five, which includes Macquarie Bank. I think Macquarie Bank likes not being part of the big four, Uh, But in essence, they have a pretty big position. $50 billion of our deposits sits in Macquarie Bank. So it is really the top five and not the top four. And that's good on Macquarie. Homegrown, success, great, 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 great Australian success story is Macquarie Bank. But when you come back to us, you know, we are literally a couple of percent. But if you narrow down the financial system to what we do, we are really do consumer lending, personal lending is another way to describe it. We don't do home lending and we don't do institutional corporate business lending. We don't do those two and we don't take deposits. So those three things that essentially APRA regulate, right, we don't do. That's why we're not a bank. We don't take mums and dads uh, money in and we don't lend to homes. But we do everything else for the consumer. What you would ordinarily use, things like your credit card, an overdraft, a personal loan, a consumer loan, a retail payment, a transaction. These are the things that we do. We do payments and instalments, transactions, credit cards, and personal loans. What's happened in the last decade, particularly in the last decade since the GFC, but it started to happen a while ago, is what I noticed is almost the banks withdrawing from the breadth of what they had in dealing with everybody and are starting to say, you know what, from a risk point of view, I'll deal with a smaller group of society 
And by the way, this is how it used to be, which is if you don't have security, i.e. your home or some other forms of security, you're going to find that we don't really want it. And if we do have to deal with you, we're going to really charge you for it. And so the refinement of their business has really reduced their interest in a broader set of people. Now, economically, that could make a lot of sense, and it does make a lot of sense, you know, reduce your risk, contain yourself, get the best returns, limit yourself to home lending, which is very safe, you know, 20 basis points. Is it partly because they're regulated and because here and overseas, regulators have moved to risk weighting of Absolutely. Everything has positioned it. More data, more information, regulatory capital requirements, which is what you're alluding to, Mal. It becomes high, the high maintenance, high capital pieces just get And then you get the rest of the population, the middle class, the rest of Australia, maybe even lower middle class, people who don't have a home. You know, 62% of Australians have a home, but 38% don't. They rent. If you don't have a home and you want to have a business, you want to do something, how do you get access to capital? So what we did is we use our credit cards and we do personal loans. But then the banks realise the weighting that's given to personal loans is so high And then you add on top of that the stress of dealing with those that go into hardship. Banks, they don't like to put people, during my time at least, they don't like to put people into hardship positions. They don't want to have to be throwing them out. They're not bad people. They actually don't want to do that because the stick that they get for a small percentage of their bad loans is disproportionate to the rest of their business. So what do you do? So Australians say, let's go after the banks and beat them up for causing this hardship to 1% of their portfolio. That's pretty tough on the banks because what do you want the banks to do? Well, I'll tell you what they did is they removed themselves from doing that kind of lending. And the people that pay is everybody. And I'll give you the fact. In the last four years, the system of personal loans is down 50%. So what they used to lend in new money from five years ago is 50% less today for personal loans. Who suffers from that? It's the people who don't have a home. It's the 38% of the population that are renters can't get a personal loan. But it's also somebody's opportunity, isn't it? There are private uh, syndicates, for example, that are now funding a significant part of uh, commercial property development in this country because the banks aren't doing it anymore. Correct. And so what happens then is that we've taken this opportunity Well, Latitude has actually found itself going from number five in personal lending for new loans in Australia to now number three. We've overtaken NAB and ANZ Bank in terms of market share and the biggest lender of new money in personal loans. Yes, their withdrawal is somebody else's advantage. All I'm saying to you right now is that We want to reach Australians and do risk-based pricing and not get caught up with that problem that they have. All right. I want to talk more about Latitude in a minute, but there's one other item on your CV that I need to cover off, and that's Australia Post. And I should go on the record here saying that I think you saved Australia Post, and that's not saying that 
there weren't other people who could do it, but you were the person that was hired by the chairman and the board to do the job. Kudos to the board for recognising that a change agent was needed because that's what you came in to do. I watched this fairly closely and wrote a fair bit about it. It was a really complicated job. It was political because Australia Post is government owned and also has a universal service obligation. But there was a huge business challenge too because you were taking over as Amazon was coming up, the internet was beginning to become a major force in retailing and you moved really quickly. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you for saying that that was a tremendous period in 2010 to 2018 when I was there. The context is, is that when I started, the profit of Australia Post had halved and letter volume had started to decline. And so I posed three very simple questions. We called it future ready, but three very simple questions. If letter writing is dying, because the alternative is called an email and it's for free, and now 95% of all correspondence is through email, we're in the 5%, it's only a matter of when, not if, what is the best way to gracefully manage that decline? Given that there is an obligation. Given there's a universal service obligation. To continue delivering mail or at least maintain the possibility, give everybody the option to continue writing letters even though they don't. I gave this stat to the politicians one day in one Senate estimates that I found it hard to believe that they were so surprised by this piece of information. I asked the question of the remaining mail that we were doing how much of that mail do you think is you and me writing to each other for the mums and dads where the universal service obligation was developed for, that I could get mail from here to London, whatever it is that I need to do? And how much is other things like bills? Actually, nobody got that answer right. 97% of all mail is businesses sending bills and transaction statements and other things to individuals. So what I said is, we're losing hundreds of millions of dollars and we needed a $6 billion subsidy if nothing changed it. I need the taxpayer to give me $6 billion so that businesses could send their mail discounted. I said, what's the problem with that? You can Give me the $6 billion, I'll do it for you. I won't change anything. And we will give the biggest corporate subsidy from citizens' taxpayers' money to help out corporates send their bills cheaply. Yeah, so the service ob obligation had changed from being something that was about giving all Australians a mail service to one that was giving corporations a subsidised yeah. mail service. And I think that was the, the moment where I was able to navigate with unions and with politicians and with society and the special interest groups and the lobby groups. If I just kept at this, I kept saying, OK, now... That w we can take care of this side, but now I've got 35,000 people who directly work for us and 20,000 people who indirectly work for us, like contractors and so forth. 20,000 of that 35,000 were in letter delivery. 10,000 of the 35,000 worked in post offices. So we had 30,000 people whose life depended upon that letter, their working job. And we had a brand and an infrastructure and a network that was under massive, massive competition, FedEx, UPS, DHL, and then Japan Post had just bought into Toll. So all of these people were competing. And so they loved us being stuck with the letter network 
because what they did is they threw their small packets into the letter network and did it at a subsidised price. So they were all wrapped and they were all foreign-owned. At the time, Tony Abbott, who was Prime Minister, and before that, Julia Gillard, who was Prime Minister, between those two was the really important laying down of the foundation for change. And an agreement started with Kevin, then went to Julia, then it went to Tony, and then it finished with Malcolm. They began all that work and then Malcolm actually finally made the brave decision to take it into Parliament to enact the legislative changes required to achieve this. But it took basically four prime ministers to get to that point. But we built up the case. Question number two was, how do we transition these people to the greatest opportunity facing us? In 2010, that it was obvious to me, having come from America and seen what's happening around the world, which is online shopping. When I started my job, online shopping was 2%, 1 1.7% as a percentage of total retail sales, 1.7%. And people say, what's this e-commerce business you're talking about? I'm saying this is the greatest opportunity to build a preeminent position in Australia that no other postal agency in the world had. And that was to build a parcels delivery business. And we did. We saved, I believe, 30,000 jobs. They didn't go part-time. They didn't have to be made redundant. We saved the taxpayer redundancy payments. And we trained these people, reskilled these people. That business now today makes $500 million of cash earnings. It's valued at over $6 billion and is a great asset owned by the people of Australia. Now, you did a uh, linchpin deal. There was uh, a pretty neat one that you did with Qantas. And I don't know whether I'm going to characterise this absolutely correctly, but basically you both had 50% of two businesses. One was air freight and the other one was parcel post delivery, the Star Trek. The other one was AAE. You went to them and said, we don't know an awful lot about planes. Why don't you have 100% of that and we'll have 100% of Star Trek? There was a balancing payment. $450 million. What do you reckon it's worth now? Well, you know, the business was making $35 million in Star Trek, you know, all the parcels business. Yeah. It was making $35 million. And the business now makes $500 million. Not bad. So I think in profit, it's what we paid for that other 50%. Just in one year's profit? One year's profit. So I think it was a pretty good deal. And I think they shut AAE. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's a tough business, airline, cargo business. Very, very tough. I think they repurposed it. And Anyway, it's good for the taxpayer. They've done all right. Coming back to uh, Latitude now, you've got a product called Latitude Pay. That's an instalment pay business. And I think there's people looking at, interested in, talking about instalment pay companies and instalment pay deals without actually knowing a lot about how they work. And I'm one of them, actually. What's the difference between instalment pay and what you might call the default way of buying now and paying later, credit cards, or an age-old way in the retail business, uh, lay-buyers? In many ways, we as Australians, as a consumer, you've got to differentiate how you see this as a consumer versus a merchant. This is very important. Say you're a retailer, a big retailer in the country, whoever it may be, and then you're a consumer. And the way you look at this product is quite different between the two. A credit card, your transaction is with the consumer. If you're a credit card, you use your credit card and then you get 30 days, no payments, and then you've got to pay it all off in 30 days. Buy now, pay later was introduced essentially within that, you know, you can get interest free on a credit card for 55 days. But 
It was introduced essentially to capture a different trend that's been going on with millennials, typically younger people, typically, but not always exclusively, whereby instead of having a balloon payment at the end of that 55 days, essentially they repay back on a weekly or fortnightly basis the amount that's owed. And so therefore you don't need a credit card and certainly you won't revolve, you avoid the, the interest payment because if you do not pay it within that 55-day interest period on a credit card, you can pay a pretty big amount of interest um, at that point and it goes back to the purchase date as well. So I think it's a very smart budgeting tool. It's a very useful one. But a lot of people are confused. What's the difference between a credit card and a buy now, pay later? A credit card is the consumer will pay you the interest if they revolve and any card fees and any other transaction fees along the way. Buy now, pay later is different because the consumer pays nothing, i.e. no interest, and typically no account keeping fee or anything like that, except they will pay potentially a late fee if they're late. Where the big difference is, is the merchant pays. So a merchant, the retailer, will come along to any one of these buy now, pay later and pay them anywhere from one, two, three, four, five, as much as even 6% of the transaction. It's no different to uh, the merchant paying for other services to help them make a sale happen, marketing services, et cetera, et cetera. But a credit card charges a consumer, buy now, pay later really charges the merchant. That's the way to think about this as a point of difference. With another smaller piece of revenue coming in, the late fee. The late fee is potentially, but certainly when these platforms are built, that was not the basis. The equivalent of the late fee on a credit card is those that don't pay it off in the interest-free people and revolve. You know, when they're revolving, they're paying a lot more than the late fee. So I think fundamentally the real big difference is when you're in control of your budget and you have access to a credit card, you are probably better off if you are able to budget, you do have the wealth, you would pay it on your credit card and you pay it back within 55 days, nobody has paid anything, right? There's no cost to you. But younger people or people who don't necessarily have the skill sets to properly budget, this is a quite a good tool to help you manage your repayment profile and it's really about you using your own money rather than somebody else's money. So I give that a big tick. But can I just say something to you? You said something a minute ago, which is very important. Buy now, pay later wasn't developed and didn't get created in this country by any particular company in the last four or five years. You know, Afterpay has become famous, ZipPay has become famous, but they didn't create this category. As a matter of fact, we've done this in Australia for a very long time. It's called lay-by. Your merchant typically in the olden days would come along and you could pay it off in instalments and then you got it and it was interest-free. As a matter of fact, you know, Jerry Harvey from Harvey Norman a long, long time ago actually was offering to sell you vacuum cleaners, dishwashers and fridges on a buy now, pay later. Interest-free with payments out years, I think. Yeah, and you could get it for years. So it's been around a very long time. The first financial services company to introduce buy now, pay later was actually AGC. AGC bought the book of 
the original Harvey Normans. That's the, uh, the old Westpac Norman consumer. Ross, exactly. And then in the 1980s, AGC was purchased by GE and it became the basis of GE money. So we at Latitude, who are originally the main corner stay of this company, is AGC. We bought a lot of other companies as well, but we bought this business and we started, in effect, the buy now, pay later. But it wasn't 10 weeks. It wasn't eight weeks. It was one year, two years, three years, four years, five years. The difference is why people don't recognise the word latitude or even GE money as much is because when we do buy now, pay later, if you did it in Harvey Norman, you would do it through something called the Go card. Go is latitude. If you went into JB Hi-Fi or the good guys, it's called Gem. And guess what? We've been doing buy now, pay later for Apple exclusively for seven years online and in store, but you wouldn't know it's latitude, it's called credit line in Australia and New Zealand. So this idea of buy now, pay later over long time periods, interest-free, interest-free, has been going in this country for decades and decades and decades. As a matter of fact, we have 2.6 million customers of which 2 million today Live active customers have been doing buy now, pay later with us for decades. You launched Latitude Pay as a brand last year, I Correct. think. Correct. And that's for the small ticket. All right. Well, I was going to say that was launched at the time you were looking at whether or not the timing and the market was right to float a piece of I think Latitude. those two were very separate decisions. Tell me again. Latitude Pay is? So Latitude Pay... We launched Latitude. We bought a small business in New Zealand in 2018 when I first started called Genoa Pay, which is essentially Latitude Pay for New Zealand. We bought it because it was a technology company. It was very interesting. The bit that we didn't do at Latitude or GE was for amounts less than $1,000 that were repaid back in less than 63 days, basically. And that's been very active space. And that's the space that the Afterpays and the Zips and all these other ones have really focused on in the last four years. We didn't offer that service as we were very risk conscious of the type of customer that would come along. We thought it was very important because we always do a credit assessment in all of our products. We do a credit assessment as to whether a customer can afford this or not. And we decided up until this point that less than $1,000 less than 60 days was not an area that we wanted to participate in until I arrived. We looked at this company, we bought into the New Zealand company and we watched what it does. And what our merchants told us is there's a bunch of customers who would like to do business with us but don't have the ability of doing things less than $1,000. And they're good credit customers. So we developed the product. We launched Genoa Pay in New Zealand. It was a smashing success in New Zealand. And then we decided in June 2019, you know what? We're going to launch this in Australia. We launched it in three months, the product. We designed it, created it, integrated it in with our major merchants and away we went. And we went off in September. In October, it started to get marketing, advertising. It was at the same time as the potential float of Latitude. It was, you know, both happening at the same time. And we launched it 
And we said in the prospectus that we would get 75,000 customers and we'd have about 20 of our major merchants integrated by December when we launched essentially in October as the launch. By December, we had 175,000 customers and 500 contracts signed, 350 merchants live. So this thing was incredibly successful because it really filled a part of our business that we didn't do, but we did all of the greater than 1,000 up to five years, but it was a small part we weren't participating in. That's not the core of our business. The core of our business is Go, Gem, Credit Line, which we're all rebranding now to be Latitude branded. You might be constrained to talk about this, but are you still getting the growth in this area? And generally, is this a line of business that's expanding quickly enough for talk about regulating the sector, bringing it into the regulatory net to get traction? Two things. One is it's 2% of our portfolio. So it's a tiny, tiny business and it's not the core business. The core business is the interest-free product that we provide, the payments and installments over one, two, three, four, five years and it's bigger ticket. You know, we typically might do $5,000 on average, for example. That's the core business. And that business is going gangbusters as well. The one difference of latitude pay that we do, that not all others will do, even for the small ticket, is we will still do a credit assessment. You know, and unfortunately, 32% of people who apply don't get the average of, you know, three, dollars $400 of credit. They won't get that. We believe this is credit. We are lending people money and therefore we want to be as responsible as we can be. And one of the ways of being responsible is by doing a credit assessment. Yes, we know one third of customers aren't qualifying and the reason why they're not qualifying is because we don't want to put them in hardship. We don't want them to have a problem down the track. It sounds like you're not going to have a problem if it's regulated like it's a loan because you think it is. We think it is a loan. We think it is credit and we do think there should be some rules of engagement about who you give this credit to, particularly as we're talking about a bunch of 20 to 30-year-olds. They've left home. They've got a job. They clearly prefer this to a credit card and there's a reason they're getting access to this. We, the industry, need to ensure that we are acting in a responsible way. And I can tell you this right now. But there's not agreement on this, is there, Armin? No, but I would say to you, we're leading by example we will do a credit assessment and I believe there are a number of others who are acting responsible like this, like Zip, for example. They will do a credit assessment and they believe in that as well. I believe it should occur because what we don't want happening to our segment is what happened to the banks because eventually if enough people get hurt, the politicians will do something about it and then it will be too late. So you don't want this to happen to you. You want to be leading by example. Let's talk a little bit about last year's float process. I know you've spoken about this before, but uh, just for our listeners, tell us what happened. You, uh, you got good support uh, domestically. Sales process was not as strong internationally for you and you decided to not go ahead with it. That's pretty much the facts. You know, the shareholders, not my decision, it's the owner's decision as to whether they sell their shares or not. All we can do is run the company and present the company. And if there's new shareholders coming along, 
to position the company appropriately and give them all the facts for them to make a decision and what price they're prepared to pay at that moment for that. There was no question that the domestic side was very good and very clear understanding of who we are. I think the international is a combination of who we are was not as clear to them. I think they saw a lot of fintechs who were making a lot of noise about customer numbers and revenue, but there was no profits, whereas we were kind of weird, you know. We had said we were forecasting approximately $280 million of net after-tax profit. And I might add, here we are now in February and we surpassed the number that we actually set in the prospectus as well. So it wasn't our profit momentum. The profit was good. It was in excess of what we said in the prospectus that we delivered by the end of the last year. But I think the reality is, is that internationally there were three or four things going on. Um, one is the fallout of the Haynes Royal Commission, even though we're not directly impacted, we are indirectly impacted. I think international investors were starting to worry about the financial services uh, risk profile. And this was a big offering. You know, some people say, oh, look, some other floats got away and they were successful, but they were raising like $50 million or $100 million. One hedge fund could just gobble that up if it wanted to. But we were looking to raise at one stage up to potentially $1.4 billion. That was a huge size. It would have been the biggest amount of new money float, certainly in 2019. But, you know, we were at a time where international investors were worried and also at that time there was something else going on as well, which is I'm sure the people at Yarra Capital would know this number intimately. They're the experts in this, but the percentage holding of financial banks by foreign investors by last year was the lowest level it had been in a long time. Like their weighting had really come down and they were risk weighting out of financials into other segments of the market. And I felt that when I was going around as well, that that was definitely a source of conversation and we were caught up in some of that. And then last but not least was Brexit. You know, everything was about Brexit. Nobody could breathe or not talk about Brexit and then nobody could breathe or talk about China, USA problems that was going to turn into a catastrophe. It's a bit like our earlier conversation about coronavirus and how some people really panicked. And if you go back at that point in October, the war of words between the USA and the president with China and some of the impact also around Iran and then you had this Brexit conversation going on where people thought, you know, there's this drop dead date. People said, look, you're not big enough that we have to hold you, but you're big enough where, you know, if I had to put this money in, it would really matter. And I don't think we had done a good enough job. If I was to talk about one of our own failures, we were traveling along, we made a decision to go. We only gave ourselves a month, one month, to try to raise up to $1.4 billion. In hindsight, if there's a lesson, it was we should have taken more time leading to that point about educating the investors, the market, and what it is we are, who we are, what is our business. I think we picked the window. It was a very narrow window. And I think, unfortunately for us, the timing ended up being a very bad time. So people then put in their bids. 
the price was lower than what the shareholders would accept. They loved the business, said, you know what, sorry, I don't, don't want that at that price. I'm happy to hold on. And that's what they did. And when you went around and spoke to uh, potential investors and described this business as fintech, as you have today, what was the response? Did they all agree with you or was there some pushback on that? And were some people saying, well, yeah, but where's the app? Actually, nobody said where's the app, actually. I mean, we do have an app, by the way. It's 500,000 people using the app right now, which we rolled out a year earlier. It's quite a good app, by the way, Malcolm. I'd encourage you to get one. I'll check it out. And put your 28-degree card on it because everybody has a 28-degree card, as you know. No foreign currency transaction fees, no annual application fee, and uh, you can get Wi-Fi wherever you go around the world. So I encourage you to put it on the app that you're going to download soon. But what I would say to you is that I think people didn't care about labels. These are sophisticated investors. They don't care about fintech label. What they really wanted to understand is we have two businesses. We have a payments and installments business. And what's different about it versus the smaller ticket buy now, pay later? And what I was trying to explain is if you talk about buy now, pay later, we've been doing it for 30 years. We don't have any branches and we use technology to enable people. It's just that where people really got confused with us, and I understand why GE did this in the old day, but certainly is not great these days when you want to cut through. We are not really one brand. We are multiple brands. And when I say to you we have 2.6 million customers and we've been doing it for 30 years and Apple is one of the exclusive accounts we've been doing for the last seven years and we've been doing buy now, pay later on iPhones, iWatches, you look at me and think, really? That's latitude? Most investors were surprised. They didn't know. That's back to my point about educating the market, educating even the investors about who we are, the size of what we do, and the core business. Nobody cares about labels, fintech, this. Uh, what they care about is what's your core business? Where do you derive your money? And what's that going to be like into the future? And how sustainable is your business? That's what they care about. And, and the bigger picture, as you know, most fund managers, it's less about the stock and it's more about the asset class. Where are they weighted? Anybody who knows anything about funds management knows there is a weighting and the weighting is 10 times more important than the individual stock. I know you won't answer this, but so when do you come back? When does the board come back to the market, I guess, yeah. is the question. So, when do the owners? Yeah, when do the owners come back is, as always, their decision, their prerogative, their three sophisticated global organisations, KKR, Varde and Deutsche Bank, you know. They know the markets incredibly well. They understand what's happening. They're, they're funds. They're not forever holders. Uh, they will look to do an event um, at some stage. And um, my job is really... Uh, not to second guess that, I need to always be ready. I need, the organisation always needs to be ready that our owners might change and we are ready for a transaction of some sorts. We're running the business as if we were publicly listed and had been before so that we've got the right disciplines and the right types of reporting, discussions and dialogue. But I can imagine that they would be thinking through the different things that they want to do and my job is to make sure the business is running really, really well. All right. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today, Ahmed. We really appreciate you making the time. In uh, these podcasts, I'm finishing with the same question for everyone and I've made your 
job a little bit difficult today because we began by talking about coronavirus because the question is a black swan question, really. It's often said, expect the unexpected. What's the biggest unexpected thing in any area that we should at least keep in the corner of our minds right now so that we're not totally gobsmacked if it happens? Look, not to sound alarmist, but if you go and check back on my last five, ten years of conversation with people, there is one thing that I've always said and that it is only a matter of when, not if, we're going to have a massive world event and it's a cyber event that's going to occur. We're starting to see skirmishes now. You know, it's begun with uh, the Iranian nuclear capacity, the Russians and the whole Cambridge Analytica situation and the impact on the US election that may have occurred. Uh, The level of sophistication and knowledge and the amount of information that's going around is of major, major, major important issues. The amount of money that's being lost in fraud is mind-boggling. People don't want to talk about it. But I have seen some information that suggests the Australian economy is losing $500 billion a year due to cybercrime, $500 billion. If you amplify that to the rest of the world, it's mind-boggling how much cyber criminals are making. And you saw only last month toll. They brought toll to its knees. Now, people think that it will be, you know, boots on, it won't be boots on ground war. It'll be a war where bad people and bad countries, if they're not given what they want, will bring down potentially the power grid. You need power for everything, everything. So you couple that issue And I think people worry about, obviously, climate change. Climate change is very real. But before we have a climate blow-up, we're going to have a cyber blow-up of major proportions. And it will be only a matter of when, not if. On a scale of uh, zero to ten, how prepared is the world for it? Not great. Maybe three, four. If every CEO you came on this podcast and asked them this question, which is how many hacking attempts and cyber intrusions are occurring per month in your company, you would be very alarmed to hear that statistic. You know, thank goodness we have a team of people here and they're amazing, led by Andrew Waldock, and my team underneath them is, you know, working around the clock. But they test people, and what they do is they keep testing and they just go to the weakest link and they go after them and then they keep moving up the chain and they get more sophisticated and more sophisticated. We can detect, but unfortunately you can put all these places in it, but it, it, the biggest infiltration occurs with human error where we click on a link at work. Yeah. And we are in diabolical trouble. That was a DNC hack, for example. And it was only last year, several have occurred, I think it was 18, where ASIO and our governments found that infiltration had occurred through some of the ISPs in this country. And some of the ISPs were used as fronts. So if I was to say, what is the most important thing that, you know, for the Black Swan event that we need to work out is, what do we do 
when our power grids are held to ransom, because I don't think even Telstra has more than 14 days of diesel fuel to keep the uh, telecommunication network going. Well, that's a very sober conclusion. Thank you very much, Ahmed. No problems. The Yarra Exchange was brought to you by Yarra Capital Management and hosted by me, Mal Maiden. If you like what you heard, and we hope that you do, hit the subscribe button and share it. And lastly, the disclaimer. The Yarra Exchange podcast content may contain general advice. Before acting on anything in this podcast, you should consider your own objectives, financial situation or needs, and seek the advice of an appropriately qualified financial advisor. Any actions based on information within this podcast are strictly at your own risk. Any mention of past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. That's all for now. Thanks for joining. Thanks for joining.